Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by Nazneen Khan Ostrom, television presenter, journalist, and author of the newly released London Immigrant City, a book which maps the British capital through the migrant communities which have come to define it. Welcome, Nazneen. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, First off, I want to tell you about what drew me to this book. And I have to say that it was very much the fact that these communities that you talk about in the book, the Irish, the Jewish community, the Italians, the Jamaicans, the Pakistanis, tend to only really be discussed politically through the lens of integration, i.e. the problem that they appear to pose to wider British identity. But your book subverts that in many ways. So I'm keen to hear how much of London's history and identity is often misrepresented. What can we learn from starting from the very communities who made London the vibrant international city it is today? So first off, Nazine, where are you in the world right now? Are you with us here in the capital? Unfortunately not, Miriam, and thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I am, unfortunately, you can say in many ways, I am in Oslo um, waiting for things around the pandemic to settle down so I can come to London, which I haven't visited for a, for over a year now. So I'm fretting and being quite depressed about that. <laughs> ah, in exile. Well, well, you know, hopefully exile in Oslo is not too bad. Um, tell me then about your relationship to London. You've written a book about the city do you consider London home? I would say I have two homes. Um, Oslo is definitely my home because I'm I'm settled here uh, with my husband and my kids. Um, but then I also have a home in London. Um, London became a home to me um, when I was quite young because my parents moved to the UK from Kenya in 1970. And most of my family and my extended family um, are based in London and New York. Um, so I have a very close relationship since I was, since I was a kid. So I've been, um, at first I'd, I used to sit in the backseat of my parents' car and we used to roam around London exploring the city. And then later on it became a city which I explored on my own. Um, so I've had spent years roaming the streets of London basically. Mm. And so now you would you consider yourself a Londoner, which, you know, is quite a prized term these days? Yes, I definitely feel like a Londoner because I know London very well. But obviously, you know, having um, travelled back and forth between Oslo and London, I haven't sort of, you know, I would have loved to have grown up in London, going to the schools in London, um, just had the daily life. Um, but I have lived in London when I studied at LSE for a year and I worked um, for six months as a journalist in London. So I got a feeling of daily life then. So what made you want to write a book about London? What drew you to this specific approach as well? Well, um, I've always been really interested in London and the way London is presented. And I've read loads of books, but something sort of was missing. And I felt it was the story of how London became London, the London we know today. Um, you know, 
about the contribution of the immigrants because London would have never been what it is without you know the people coming you know basically after 1948 when the national um uh, when, when the national nationality act was enforced mm. um, but people have been coming to London you know since you know the beginning of time basically and it has sort of created this multicultural amazing capital where I think you know just the idea the word multicultural for me is a very problematic word because I think culture has always been dynamic it's never been homogeneous I think mm. there's a there's a misunderstanding there and I really wanted to highlight you know the contributions of the the many, many communities that are in London. Um, and I found, I, fi- I felt that that was missing. You know, it was a lot about, I know that how the UK has been built up by immigrants, but London specifically, I sort of missed that link. That's, all, that's why I felt that I should um, try to do something about that with my book. Mm. And so, well, let's talk briefly about the British Nationality Act of 1948, a piece of legislation which meant that all of the citizens of the empire, of course, we mean here the British Empire, around 800 million people now had the right to settle and work in Britain. And you refer to it in the book as having wide reaching consequences for London and for London's identity. How how so? Well, basically, you know, um, immigration was sort of, you know, opened up and people from the colonies, as we can call them, were allowed to um, enter the UK. Um, they were, they, and also, you know, every community I've written about has their own specific story, but you can look at the Caribbean community. They were actively invited to come to the UK, to come to London and rebuild the city after the war. Um, so they were, they came by invite. Um, when it comes to the the, um, the Indian Pakistani community, um, it's quite a complex story. It's about both invitations, but it's also about having the rights and the and the and then and you know being part of the empire. So they wanted to be part of of the of London. Um, so there's so many you know different entrance points here when it comes to the communities. But common for them was they all they came they came to came to London and um, started their lives and they had different, you know, um, uh, um, so it's a different points of entering entering London. Some of them were highly educated, some of them, you know, had more rural backgrounds, but in every way they contributed, it, either it was intellectually or it was on a more sort of, um, you know, on, a, on a work, a different work um, centered manner. Um, so it sort of gradually changed the whole cosmetic makeup or the makeup of uh, of London in that way. Do you um, ever think about, I mean, it's something I've thought about a few times, the idea that, of course, when Britain was an empire, then all of the people across the world who were subjects of the British Empire were technically part of Britain, uh, British, uh, you could say, but then when those people through the Nationality Act technically become citizens of empire, um, once they start coming to mainland Britain, they start to be referred to as immigrants. And there's just something about that sort of shift that seems bizarre to me. So when Britain's in India, India is British. But when mm. Indians come to Britain, they're Indians? Yeah, I know it is very it is very strange because I do, 
you know, I have this conversation a lot with people because I say I'm, I, I am British and then they'll say, no, but you're an immigrant. And I'm like, no, but I am British because I have a British passport. I am a citizen of Great Britain. So when you say I'm an immigrant, that's totally wrong. Um, but that, that's the whole problem with, with the perception of who of, of citizenship and, and entitlement and the way we use words. Um, so when I'm when the book is called Immigrant City, it is basically a sort of you know, I'm playing with concepts um, because there's no doubt about people coming from all over the empire to London. They're, they are immigrating from, from somewhere, but they're not immigrants as such, mm. uh, which I think is really important for the conversation. Um, I think it's important to, to challenge concepts of who are immigrants and what is immigration. Um, so that's part of the project of my book. It's sort of, um, my book has a sort of subtle ideological touch. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> so it is um it's about challenging um perceptions i would well, say yeah well it is a problem you know that one minute we are british and then the next minute we are immigrants well particularly when we tell the story of a city right because then if you refer to communities um as immigrant communities then the default conversation which is i think the one that we're still having today is about integration and in some cases even assimilation the idea that um, foreign communities have come over here to this sort of homogenous, you know, white question mark British uh, country and, you know, that they have to assimilate, they have to integrate. But how do you think your story of London in particular shifts that narrative? Well, obviously, it's a sort of... Um... I'm trying to show sort of indirectly that um, I would say that, you know, London is, I mean, obviously there is, there is a dominant story about London, uh, which I would say in many ways is about, about the white British, um, that they are sort of um, the dominant narrative of, of London. If you, if you look at the way London is looked upon from abroad, like I'm talking um, from Norway, and if you see the way, no, Great Britain is covered in the Norwegian media. It's mostly about, you know, it can be about the, um, it can be the royal family. When it was, even when the, even though even even during Brexit, the people who were being interviewed were basically uh, the white British in London, and I would be very surprised uh, uh, and thinking, why aren't they talking to people of of you know having different backgrounds in London? And I think that that is sort of. Um, and my hope with my book was to show that London is a much more complex city in terms of culture and political uh, and economical, you know, outlooks. And I was hoping that my book would sort of, you know, nudge that idea about what assimilation is, about what integration is um, in a sort of subtle way to just make people think about what immigration really is. Or, um, so it's sort of a, it's sort of a, an indirect way of, of going ahead that way um, mm. and challenging narratives in a way. Mm. How would you say that whiteness showed up for you growing up? Um, and maybe we start with what whiteness means to you. What do you understand by the term whiteness? Well, obviously, you know, coming coming from um, having a, a South Asian um, South Asian background, you obviously. Um, 
during my my um, childhood in in Guildford in Surrey, um, there was always uh, you know um, an interesting conversation going on at home uh, about who is um, who has access to the jobs, um, who has access to you know basically um, you can say the uh, how should you say this the the more the higher qualities of life and how do you access that and obviously um and I was quite aware of that when I went to school who who would I who did I go to school with I was very often the only Asian girl there um when I went to to public school and then later on as I grow older when I came to Norway obviously I was uh, um one of um, always very often the only immigrant um student around so I became sort of blatantly aware of the differences. And when I started um, talking to my parents about, um, about London and life, they would always say, you know, well, the, the, the English, they can do whatever they want while we have to play by other rules. So it's about sort of, um, and you have to be better than them in order to get jobs, in order to, you know, make a, to stand out, you have to work even harder because there is a natural hierarchy there. And they were very affected by this when they grew up in, um, in Nairobi and in Mombasa because the British you know were ruling and then you had the the Indians in the middle and then you had the um the Kenyans on bottom so it was a very hierarchical um community uh, which played into the every you know essence of their life I would say so that's something which I grew up with. And so how would you say let's start with maybe a comparison between whiteness in Norway and whiteness in Britain. Do you see significant differences in the way that whiteness operates in the two countries? Or do you see it as a structure that's kind of very similar across white European nations? I would say it is definitely something that the similarities here, because obviously um, the whiteness does dominate the narratives um, of who we are and how we think and who sits in the power. And I think, you know, as we're seeing in in, in the UK now, there are lots of um, uh, there are lots of people challenging um, the dominant narratives which have been established by um, you know by white intellectuals, by people of power who are white. And the same thing you can see all over Europe, and you can see that in Norway too. So it's, it's a, it, at the moment you can see there is a even more clear struggle um, to get um, alternative narratives um, in the in the mainstream media. You can see that you know through even the movies which um, Steve McQueen made with Small Axe for me is a very clear example of somebody who's trying to tell a different story about the UK. And we have similar um, efforts going on here in Norway too, where you have young filmmakers and writers trying to talk about their experiences of being um, being minorities in, in, in Norway, which is a very homogeneous society. But Oslo has one third of the population here has um, immigrant roots. So Oslo is a very interesting city in that, in that sense, that's becoming very um, very cosmopolitan, I would say. So there are similarities when it comes to challenging um, the way we think about, you know, the countries we live in. And and so I suppose, so would you say that whiteness in those contexts, both in, in the Norwegian and the British one, and is something related to the idea of access to power, access to um, presumably connected to power, wealth, opportunities, um, equality in treatment? Oh, definitely. I would definitely say that um, all um, 
all the research which is done in Norway has shown um, that people, I mean, the, I hate we're using the words in the ethnic Norwegians, but you know, the, the white Norwegians um, mm. obviously have a different, um, a different life than the, the ones who belong to the ethnic minorities. Um, so there is, a, there is a huge disparity um, when it comes to income, when it comes to health. We've seen this very clearly during the, the pandemic. Um, also, you can see when you look at um, when you look at uh, the power structures, um, it's dominated by ethnic Norwegians, as by white by white people, um, as is in many ways it has been for a long time in the UK. And so, how would you say that whiteness showed up in your uh, country of birth? Because, of course, you mentioned Kenya, former British colony. There were hierarchies that you were aware of growing up. Um, was it whiteness you experienced living in an African country? And how was your family's position in relation both to whiteness, but to the indigenous Africans who you say were sort of bottom of the rank in this case? Mm. Well, I was only two when we moved from from, um, from Kenya to the UK, but my parents have um, told me lots of you know stories of their experiences being um you know my, both my my uh, my father was a doctor there and the the senior consultants and consultants and the bosses of the hospitals always um tend to be um from the uk and white um so there was always there was always a glass always a glass ceiling in terms of of power um in his in his work um they would also you know talk about growing up in different communities you know you they would go to schools but they wouldn't be they wouldn't be that mixed they would be um not they wouldn't have so much social interaction with the whites uh, or the english people in in kenya or mombasa um so it was very it was very fragment fragmented in that sense uh, and there was always a sense that you know the British are on top and you are in the middle as a as, a, as an Indian or a Kenyan Asian as they later on became known um, so it was it was very it was very strong and very evident you know the way you look upon yourself and as it's very typical um, is is in how um, immigrants tend to want to become like their own um, masters, if you want to use a, a word like that. Mm. Um, so, you know, you, you, you integrate the British way of life. And I remember the British um, comedy series called Goodness Gracious Me, they would, they would always have a, you know, a family trying to be more British than the British themselves. And they would adopt all the so-called, you know, white British lifestyle. And um, so it, would be, it, would, it was quite interesting uh, the way that was sort of ridiculed, but it was done with love, but it's no doubt about you know the way of you know if you look at the way people from south from from sub the sub-indian continent there is a lot of you know emulating the british upper class there uh, in mannerisms and dress ways and you know it's just um i would say it's just the last few years where you've seen a, a distinct uh, celebration and embracement of, of one's own culture in a way would you say that you know, because the, the, I think maybe in the way that we talk about race today, that that would be considered the, the idea of proximity to whiteness. Would you agree with that? The idea of kind of emulating whiteness in order to try and accede to the, um, the, the privileges, the opportunities that are perceived or are actual within that. Do you, in the context of colonial Kenya, was, did the, um, Kenyan Indian community serve a uh, uh, serve to reinforce hierarchies of whiteness against Kenyans, the domestic, the, the the indigenous communities of that country. I mean, what? How did the how did the 
Kenyan Indian community see itself with regards to the, the Kenyan people? Well, I think it was it was quite sort of um, obviously uh, it's difficult to generalize. I, I can only speak for my own um, family experiences, uh, but my idea was that my my family were, felt very close to the Kenyans, and especially when during the Mau Mau uprising, um, that they had a lot of solidarity with their uprising. Uh, but again, it was a very co uh, conflicted situation where where a lot of the Kenyan Indians, um, Kenyan nations, you know, they own land that they hired. Um, uh, the Kenyans to work there, um, so there was a hierarchy there, and there is a, there has been a, a lot of debate about how Kenyan nations related to the, to the to the Kenyans after after they were uh, after uh, Kenya became the British retreated. Um, so that, that's been a conflict for a long time in Kenya, and it's still there because a lot mm. of the Kenyan nations became business people and very very rich and powerful um, and that became a huge issue for a lot of the uh, the Kenyans that you know the, the Indians had a lot of power suddenly and were very rich and they're mostly in business um, so that has been a tension there uh, and that tension still exists in Kenya um, so it's, it, it's a, it is a very complicated um, field when it comes to hierarchy and solidarity and who who um, whose side you want to be on because the Kenyan nations were, were, were caught in the middle um, because they, they a lot of them wanted to go back to, to India um, but then the Indian the Indian um, government didn't want them back and then the British were uh, sort of um, decided okay they can get British citizenship that but that was all complicated too so not every it, was, it wasn't done lightly so they were mm. sort of stuck in the middle um, so it was some people have called the Kenyan nations you know the the uh, sort of um, Asian Jews because they had no uh, they had no roots they had no sort of you know um, a, a territorial connection and they were sort of stuck in the middle um, mm. and very cosmopolitan because they had a lot of influence from a lot of cultures and you can see uh, amongst the the Muslim community among of the Kenya nations tend to be very liberal not very conservative and um, so it's a, and a lot of emphasis on education. So it's a slightly different community than the than the Indians and Pakistanis who came directly to the UK. There's a lot of difference there culturally and class-wise. Hmm. So yeah, because I mean, I've the little reading I've done around this suggested to me that there was something in the proximity to whiteness, to British whiteness in that context, which afforded um, Kenyan Asians sort of opportunities um, that weren't present for indigenous communities there um but but let's let's go back to to london um and to the subject of your book i wanted to ask you about the term multiculturalism because you grew up at the height of multiculturalism um mm. and yet you said in the intro here that you don't really like the term so how would you define multiculturalism and and how different do you think the culture is today to you know what I'm going to call the height of multiculturalism which I think probably would be what the 80s and 90s mm. Mm. Now, it is an interesting and complicated conversation because I think um I've taken a sort of stance a stance that culture has always been global um that there has um and again within each each country um there are numerous cultures 
and depending upon your class background, your educational background, um, the where you live regionally. So if you go to say, if you come to Norway, say, there's going to be enormous differences um, from the people in living in Oslo and Eastern Norway compared to the Northern Norway. So talking about one Norwegian culture is very difficult, I think. Mm. So it sort of, you know, it's, it becomes a myriad of cultures and always um, interacting each other with it, each other and then you have the influences from um, abroad coming in and many different strands um, so when you come to London you've obviously had a culture which is constantly developing since London was um, established um, so it is, a, it is it's a long uh, a long history of different cultures constantly mixing 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 so you can't go back to one point and say that's um, you know essentially they saw essentially that because I don't believe in essentialism in that sense mm. so when you know when when you had um, people coming in from all over um, and you wanted to sort of you know it's also about again about you know the idea of the nation state each nation has to create a story about themselves um so the uk has i mean england has its story norway has its story and you need to do that to keep a cohesive community right so the nations need that um so that i think that is an interesting um framework here and um, it's it's a necessity to make a national culture that everybody can be part of but mm. in places like uh, great britain which always has been a um you know in, in traveling you know the brits have been traveling all over the world forever and they're always bringing with them um cultures and ideas back to the uk but a country like norway which is a much more homogeneous society that's easier to make a um, a narrative um, and a national narrative and a consensus around what is Norwegian but this has been constantly challenged and I think that's what London is a sort of um, I would say in many ways uh, I've called it like a, a small pot where you can study um, developments which you can see all over the world because you have this constant um, in a hybrid cultures developing so London today will be very different than London in another 10 years time and that London I knew from the 80s and 90s a very different place again um, because you have different dominant cultures um, there and what Basically. and what about what about the celebration of because I think what a lot of people who lived through that era um I mean I I was young growing up in in the 90s but I still grew up thinking of multiculturalism as something that really defined us as a city that we were very proud as Londoners to think of ourselves as a city in which different cultural groups all of them British but bringing their own flavor contributed to making London the, the the cool city that it is you know the city that people from across the world want to come to um and 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 a city that was producing you know internationally recognized art and music and um and yet that narrative about multiculturalism has fallen foul in recent years you know there's been a, a massive pushback around that um what do you what I mean what in, in in researching your book did you get a sense of why there has been this um pushback against multiculturalism and why, why is multiculturalism today a dirty word 
Um, oh, the new, I would say the numerous things because um, I can acknowledge, you know, London in the 90s being, you know, I would say that London is an extremely tolerant city of each, you know, because there are so many people from all over the world living there together. And sometimes when I meet people who are, you know, ideologically more on the on the right hand side, they, they will, I would say to them that London should have, you know, gone up, gone up in flames a long time ago if, if we were going to believe your narrative that people can't live together and have very different ways of living and religions and um, and cultures but that is in no way true about London I would say people are extremely tolerant they they acknowledge each other you can live you know quite at the same time separate lives but integrated lives at the same time and I think the problem um, with the idea of multiculturalism was obviously because there are certain um, communities who embrace values that are problematic on a more universalistic level um, and I would say that you know that the, the 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 change of the political landscape towards um having stronger nation states about having the rhetoric of us and them um has has sort of um, become stronger because political parties have played into different um sort of I would say uh, they found, you know, it's all about political game, basically. You know, how can we, how can we win votes? How can we create divisions? And I think that's why multiculturalism suddenly got this really bad feeling because it was very much a lot about, you know, about the the Muslim community, um, how they were very different, how they represented different um, ideals than the um, than the, the Christian communities. Um, they were tended to be seen as more liberal compared to the Muslims who were very conservative. Um, so that so then you have this political um, play going on, which I think is very is very dangerous, uh, which you saw, you know, you saw you saw um, that after after um, the satanic versus debate with Salman Rushdie, and then you had it after 9-11, where you had a, a stronger idea of us and them that started growing growing strongly. And I remember I was studied at LSE at the end of the 90s, and it was still very, you know, we were still rejoicing, you know, enjoying sort of the idea of multiculturalism, and it was, you know, we're all in this together. And then 9-11 happened, and something, you know, the whole world changed, and the way we looked at each other changed. And so I think that had a lot to, to do with, you know, the idea of multiculturalism sort of becoming problematic. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I definitely resonate with a lot of that. And I think um, today about, you know, the extent to which the disintegration of um, the ideal of multiculturalism um, has really led the nature of debates around things like stripping people of their identity, for example, the idea that certain people can be can have their identity their British identity removed um because it's not so much that now if you have dual identities that that's a celebrated part of Britishness but actually that's a foreign part of you that we can separate off and exclude which is feels very different in nature to to what I would have um definitely thought of as the height of, of, of the celebration of multiculturalism how would you how do you think Brexit has played into the identity of London as a city I think London fair it's probably fair to say that London's always been an sort of outward looking at least very international cosmopolitan you know has Brexit significantly impacted the identity of the city well that was my impression because when I started working on my book that was just as Brexit sort of you know that the vote 
and went, yes, we're going to leave. And that's when I started working on my book. And it was really interesting to see how that conversation, the people I was meeting, uh, how that how their thoughts were changing. Majority, majority of the people I talked, you know, they were they were not they were not pro Brexit at all because London has been very um, hasn't hasn't been pro Brexit. But what I noticed was, um, and, and I, as I've also written in my book, was the sort of hierarchy of hate, which I sort of suddenly saw. It was like a hierarchy of hate and it was like an octopus of hate and which went into all communities so people started viewing each other with more skepticism you know you suddenly had the 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 like the older immigrant communities like the Caribbeans and the South and the, and the Asian South, the Asian community, um, suddenly, you know, turning against the East European community and the new East European community turning against them. And it became this sort of weird um, hierarchy of who's been in the UK the longest and who belongs here and you know who's got who's in, who's got the jobs and who hasn't got the jobs so it was a sort of very uncomfortable um development I noticed in the years I was working with my book um so I think I found it quite depressing to see the way Brexit sort of went in there and and um I would say um allowed a lot of hate to to flourish uh, I found that quite depressing but then at the most but then again you had communities where who were really rigidly against um, Brexit, which was very, you know, reassuring, at least for me to mm. experience. But obviously, you know, people have this idea of, you know, I belong here, don't you threaten me, I have I have the right uh, of this and that. But it, you know, it, it did split people in, in a very ugly way, I would say, and still it, is. Yes, and absolutely, it's still very divisive to this day. Um, I'm I'm curious whether you found differing attitudes amongst different um, communities to uh, this particular topic, because um, of course we know that even within London there were uh, certain parts of London. I'm thinking of Luton in particular, where you know majority South Asian communities vote did vote, you know, for Brexit. Um, and so, in speaking to kind of such a range of different communities across the capital did you get a sense um that for some brexit represented a, an opportunity or or hope or did you find differences across these different communities when it came to the the the, the, the majority perception of course uh, of those who are critical of brexit is that brexit is an anti-immigrant vote right that it is an anti-immigrant mm-hmm. but we saw some parts of london that are people of um uh, in this case south asian backgrounds majority south asian backgrounds who did vote for that was that also an anti-immigrant vote or did you feel that there were different attitudes across these communities to the issue of Brexit? Well, when it comes to South Asian vote um, uh, on Brexit, I think it's really interesting to see, um, to analyse their, their background when it comes to class, because what I realised um, when I was talking to a lot of them was that they felt their their you know, their jobs were endangered because you had an influx of East Europeans when the EU opened and extended. Um, so they felt that they're, you know, traditionally the jobs they've had um, were under threat um, from, from the Eastern Europeans because of, you know, differences in wages. Um, so it was, a, it was a matter of feeling powerless, I would say, that they felt, you know, that their, their livelihood was threatened. Um, it wasn't so much you know, anti-immigration. We don't like immigrants. It was about losing losing their space and their commu- and their um, their work. 
um, when I try to talk to some of them and when I what I've read and uh, the research I've read so I don't think it's sort of so much anti-immigration as you know losing losing your security mm. um, and I think it's uh, so I think that's that's an interesting aspect there but then you you know I would say again you have people you know you it is about it is what what's close to your heart and what's close to your home because I think again um the communities we're talking about you know they, they see themselves as British they see themselves as they want to they want to they have the they have the they in many ways they have the right to think that they want to protect um Great Britain and this is the interest of Great Britain to be um to uh, embrace Brexit in any way like everybody else who's who's white and voting Brexit um, so they also have a, a, a feeling of nationality you know a strong sense of of the nation um, as well even though they might be you know second generation born in in London mm. um, so I think it's really important to see see it in that framework because it's it sort of I think it becomes a bit it becomes a bit strange to think that you know because you're happen to have an immigrant background you are per definition against brexit no because there could be so many things that um are important to you in your life it could be your you know your livelihood and that you have a strong national feeling for for um great britain um so that becomes a sort of an aspect which is really important difficult it's dangerous to generalize I think when it comes to Brexit yeah and it's also interesting how that ties in like you say to national identity that it's sort of almost throwing people back to um you know their ancestry in a way that suggests that they would you know necessarily identify with immigrants when actually you know maybe people fully identify now as um from a national basis and therefore um you know the the question would be no different to someone of a a different ethnicity that's I think it's an interesting point I mean you uh, all the communities you describe in the book but especially the Caribbean communities of London had violent encounters with whiteness be it the the teddy boys or other white supremacist gangs which would target these communities why do you think white Londoners struggled to accept the presence of communities who'd long been part of the British empire um and were then you know an integral part of post Britain's post-war Britain's reconstruction well, obviously, when it comes to the Caribbean community, um, you have the blatant, uh, you know, there's just a blatant racism that some races are superior to others. That's, you know, at the bottom there. And then secondly, you have, you know, when the Caribbeans come to come to London, they um, initially, you know, obviously they're invited to come and work. And then as you know, the, the, the economic situation changes and they uh, are not... Um, they become unemployed and um, you have that t- the, the typical story of you know people coming from you know immigrant communities and having you know access to welfare that the w- white working class community didn't have and that story sort of is propelled you know by the right wing uh, right wing parties um, so so you have a very classical situation there um, and I think also that you know it was just um it has been a, a very uh, tough struggle for the Caribbean community in London, and um, they are still struggling today. Uh, and there's no doubt about that racism, which is, you know, has been part and parcel of the British Empire, has had an enormous impact on the Caribbean community, disproportionately, I would say. Um, so it is, it is, and it also was very interesting when it, when it comes to Brexit too. And there was a very strong, um, sort of, I would say. Um, a, 
tension between the Caribbean community and the East European community uh, because um, uh, some strands of the Eastern European, Eastern European community are quite racist and uh, the Caribbean community were an easy target um, to, mm. to, uh, to, uh, um, uh, to um, attack. So it becomes sort of a, you know, there's several, several layers here, basically. Mm. But um, I, I think it's really important to, and I try to, I try to tell people, you know, that the British Empire was, you know, it, it was, it was racist at, at its core. And sometimes in, you know, when people are watching the crown, you know, and they're celebrating, you know, the royal family and the crown and the series. And I'm like, but, you know, for us who, who belong to the empire in a different way, we, we look at this in a totally different you know a different different narrative altogether I don't find it I don't find this entertaining this is about my family this is about my life this is about mm. my whole my my ancestry so this is not entertainment for me yeah <laughs> so I, I, and it's and that's very important for me and has been very important for me to 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 talk about when I when I'm talking about um London, my London book that this is this is very close to home everything you know about the British Empire it's not entertainment would you say that the different um immigrant communities that you um spoke to in the book that these communities that obviously then become part and parcel of what makes London London part and parcel of the British tapestry but that these communities did they experience whiteness differently um well obviously it's um it's obviously because they are they are very very different communities the Irish um you know, there's a different story uh, between a different history between the Irish and the English, and the you know the English um, amount of occupation um, and also religion because you have Catholicism there. Um, and the same when it comes to the Italians, um, that there is a there is also um, an element of you can call it sort of you know a sub. You know, it was very interesting. I was reading about the Italians, and I had no idea that you know um, that you know after the Second World War, um, they they would rather have Northern Italians than Southern Italians. So they even had a hierarchy when it came when it came to the Italians, which is quite bizarre. Which was rooted um, in what? Um, no, it was it was just rooted. You know, the, lang- the f- further south you come, the darker they become. The more... That's what I was thinking. Yeah, so it was yeah. it, it was racialized. It was it was it, to it do was with skin tone. Yeah, yeah. Even with even with even with the Italians, whom you would presume would be you know invi- you know openly invited to to uh, to the UK, but not not so much. Um, no. So so it is the sort of. Um, I know it's it's just this really depressing. Um, uh, I would say when I when I started you know doing research into each group, I, I I became quite sort of depressed when I saw how deep the racism was rooted and how um, how extensive it was into every community. Um, so it was a sort of um, I was just thinking there is a superiority, a, a feeling of superiority which is quite extreme. But then again, I, it's it's all about the ruling classes, right? It's not about it's not about the the it's about classes get, I mean, pushed towards each other and clashing, uh, which is really important to understand that, it, it, for me at least, having that perspective that it's, that it's very strongly rooted in class, um, which I find very important when it comes to looking at communities. 
Yeah, no, I think the, the the conversations around sort of whiteness and race obviously have to go hand in hand with understanding the way in which class functions and class and race obviously function in in tandem. So it's um, and I think for a country which is so hierarchical like the UK, uh, you know, particularly obviously by virtue of having, you know, a, an aristocracy, you know, a royal family, um, that these these are really important factors. Like before we just go to um the uh, quick fire session i wanted to bring out a point that you make in the book which is that you know um there's some great facts that come out you say over 300 languages are spoken here in london at least 50 different ethnic groups have populations of over 10,000 almost 40% of the population was born outside the uk a third of them inside uh, a third of them outside the eu but most outside of the eu um do you think these communities and their contribution to the capital is reflected in the story we tell about who we are as London? Well, it's becoming much better <laughs> than it used to be. I, I, I'm quite sort of, I mean, I think the the significance that we have Sadiq Khan as our mayor, as our mayor, I will say our mayor, um, has a lot to, has, is very important, and that's something I try to highlight. That you know he was he's been he's been voted twice um, to be the mayor of London, and I think he embodies a lot of that sort of cosmopolitan uh, values that are um, embedded in London's in fabric. Um, and I think increasingly so you can see um, a celebration of what London, you know, the, the, the richness of London is, is more evident now than ever, uh, which, which is very reassuring, I think. Um, so I think it's, um, it's a very good, it's, it's definitely much better than it's ever been. Mm. Um, but I think there's still, a, you know, obviously there's a lot of um, issues about power, representative, representation, I would say, is still is very important um, in London. But it's, it, it is, a, it is, a, it is a, in, in that sense, when it comes to different stories being told, I think it's become a much better place, um, definitely. Um, well, thank you so much. We're going to go now to the quick fire round. So um, you know how it works. You are, will be given a very quick question and we are looking for very quick answers. What <laughs> okay. is your definition of whiteness? Um, I would say it has to do with domination. What is the root of racism? I would say it is um, ignorance. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? Definitely desirable, achievable, I am not so sure about. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Yes, I do think so. And why? I think it's important to um, talk about this so that people who actually are white um, can reflect upon their position of power. Thank you so much, Nazneen. I uh, really appreciate your thoughts today. Um, if people want to connect with your work, uh, where should they go? Well, basically, they can contact me on um, Instagram or on Facebook. I am an at Nazneen Astrem uh, on Instagram and I am on Facebook. And um, obviously, you can go to uh, Little Brown and Robinson's, um, which is the imprint where my book is um, published. That would be brilliant. Is that the best place for people to purchase your book? That is your, your uh, store of choice. Yes, definitely. 
fantastic well Nazneen Khan Ostrom thank you so much for your time thank you again to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of we need to talk about whiteness please do subscribe on iTunes Spotify or SoundCloud you can also now find us on Twitter and Instagram and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness